Time is muscle, reducing the risk of an acute myocardial infarction. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the University of Chicago, and with me today is Dr. David Faxon. Dr. Faxon is the Vice Chair of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He is the Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at the Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Faxon served as President of the American Heart Association from 2000 to 2001. Dr. Faxon, welcome to our show today. Thank you. Today we're going to discuss strategies to improve early reperfusion in ST segment elevation myocardial infarctions. And I thought I'd start with a fairly simple question. Do we have definitive data that shows that we have reduced the death rate in patients who come into the hospital with an acute MI? Matt, I think we do, but we've made smaller progress in that regard than I think we can achieve by instituting a number of simple things. But there's little doubt that when we do it right, when we reperfuse the patient early, obtain optimal reperfusion, give the right medicines, that we have a very profound effect on long-term mortality. What are the strategies that have been the best for reducing that mortality? Well, it's actually quite simple, and that is very early reperfusion. It's easy to say, but hard to implement in this country for a variety of reasons. But the earlier the artery is opened, the more muscle is saved. The more muscle that's saved, the smaller the heart attack, the smaller the heart attack, the better the long-term outcome of both mortality and recurrent infarction. Now, how early does that have to be? You said the earlier the better. Uh, How early is best? It's a relationship between the time since the onset of symptoms to the time that the arteries opened up, uh, which is termed the ischemic time. It's not necessarily just the time of when the patient arrives at the hospital to the time they open their artery up. That's an important time as well. But it's the overall total ischemic time, the time presumably when the artery occludes to the time it's opened up. And if that can be reduced to less than one hour, that's pretty hard to do. But if you can reduce it to one, less than one hour, there are very dramatic savings uh, in the size of the myocardial infarction. still have a myocardial infarction, but they tend to be very small, and outcomes are really excellent. Now, is there a time where it is too late that the horse is out of the barn, so to speak, and uh, it's no longer beneficial to open up the artery? Yes, there is. And uh, that's a little harder to estimate. Generally, people assume that after 12 hours, there's very limited benefit or no benefit. I also use some clinical parameters to help figure that time out. The patient no longer has chest pain. The ST segments have resolved. They're back to baseline. The presence of Q waves, generally, I think the horse is out of the barn at that point. On the other side, if the patient is beyond 12 hours and they still have ongoing chest pains and the ST segments are still elevated, there still may be value in opening the artery up at that time. Now, you said that the most important thing is to get this artery open as quickly as possible. We have two major ways to do that, of course, using direct intervention on the artery, PCI, angioplasty, or using thrombolytic therapy. And I know there's a lot of data out there, but can you summarize it for us? Which is better? Is it better to open the artery with a balloon, or is it better to give thrombolytic therapy? I think the studies that have been done where they've been compared head-to-head, and there are a, number, there are a large number of studies, uh, and there are several large meta-analyses that have compared the studies. Um, Angioplasty wins out over thrombolysis, but that is only occurs when it's done on a timely basis, done by an experienced team, and in randomized trials. There is now some very large population data from Sweden has also shown that in the non-academic settings, in the real-world settings, that 
primary angioplasty is better than lytic therapy, even if the lytic therapy is given before the hospitalization, uh, which is done routinely, actually, in Sweden and European countries. And I think the reasons are fairly obvious, and that is that when the arteries open by angioplasty, it's a much more complete opening, and a much higher percentage of patients get complete reperfusion. With lytic therapy, that may average only about 60% at best, about 30 or 40% if one looks at optimal opening. Um, but with angioplasty, it's in the 90 to 95% range. How long does it take after we give lytic therapy for the artery to actually open? Is it instantaneous or is there some delay even when you give uh, intravenous lytic therapy? Yeah, there, there's a delay. And in the early days, there was a, lots of uh, studies that demonstrated that it takes time for the lytic therapy to work. It's generally assumed that most arteries that are going to open up, open up about 90 minutes after giving the lytic therapy. So there's a fairly substantial delay, but some will open up as quickly as 15 minutes or so afterwards. But it takes a while for the lytic therapy to work. And as I mentioned, uh, a large percentage of patients don't have complete lysis. There's still clot there and still some reduction in blood flow. What I'd like to explore a little bit is some of the barriers to rapid reperfusion. And we really need to start, I guess, outside of the hospital. Can you describe for us some of the reasons that uh, patients don't get to the hospital on time and some of the barriers to getting there to get this therapy in a timely fashion? Yeah, I, I think this is actually one of our biggest problems, and it's the most difficult to try to figure out a good solution for the first is that patients don't really recognize that they're having an MI. We think of it an MI as a very classic description of somebody grabbing their chest with extremely severe chest pain. But in fact, a lot of patients don't have those symptoms. They have very mild symptoms or just shortness of breath or weakness. And they often ascribe the symptoms to something, you know, stomach problem. And there's a good deal of denial uh, that the patients have, even when they recognize something severe is going on, they need medical attention. So that's the first step is recognizing there's a problem. And then the second is calling 911. It's actually remarkable that less than half of patients who present emergency room with a ST segment elevation MI come by 911, even with patients who clearly recognize they're having a heart attack. They don't want to call 911. And there have been a whole lot of efforts to try to improve the education of patients about what the signs of an MI are and to urge them to call 911 with actually fairly limited success. Once the patient arrives in the emergency department, what are some of the barriers that patients run into once they have gotten into the hospital? Well, I think the goals here are well stated in the recent guidelines for the management of ST segment elevation MI. There have been a revised guidelines that are just coming out from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association. And the recommendations are that if a thrombolytic agent is going to be given, that it be given within 30 minutes, or if primary angioplasty is to be done, that it's done within 90 minutes. And those are uh, times that are difficult to achieve unless you have a well-coordinated system. And there are many steps to the process. The first is that the patient needs to get an EKG within five minutes of presentation at the emergency room. And unless the emergency room is well set up to do that, that doesn't occur. And then the patient needs to be rapidly evaluated, and the cardiac catheterization laboratory, if it's a primary angioplasty, needs to be activated. And then the patient has to be transported to the laboratory. The staff have to set up the room, and then the procedure has to take place. And so that all of those components take a coordinated effort and a team approach to making it happen rapidly. I understand there's a term that's going around now called door-to-balloon time. What do they mean by that term? Yes, that's a measure of the time when the patient arrives in the emergency room through the door of the emergency room to the time that the balloon catheter is inflated in the artery 
during primary angioplasty. And that's the time that needs to be within the 90-minute time frame. So it's not just getting to the lab. It's actually getting to the lab, getting the artery cannulated, get the balloon up there and into the vessel that is occluded. Yes, exactly. And so the delays are little, a few minutes here and a few minutes there. It's, it's not as if there's one element that is clearly the biggest problem. So there have been a, a number of studies that looked at how can we drop the door to balloon times to an acceptable level, and the factors that seem to be the biggest in preventing that from happening are this coordination team approach, particularly having the emergency room activate all of the important elements to make it work fast. So it sounds like if this is going to work, we really need to empower the emergency room physicians to make the decision that an acute MI is occurring and to activate the cath lab and activate physicians. In other words, we can't wait for a cardiology consult anymore. We have to have activation from the very beginning? Absolutely, yeah. There have been now a whole lot of studies. There's an effort by the American College of Cardiology called the D2B, door to balloon, time effort, and there is an American Heart Association program as well that is ongoing, looking at ways to improve both getting to the hospital and then the door to balloon time when you get there. And a big component of is that the emergency room physician activate the whole process. And the fear, of course, from the cardiologist was that a lot of patients would, the whole system would be activated and the patient actually wouldn't be having an MI when everybody came in. The reality is that happens extremely rarely. So it is really not a realistic concern. And programs that have put together a program like this have shown very substantial reductions in their door to balloon time of 20 to 40 minutes. So that's a very big change and a huge saving. Just changing from 120 minutes of door to balloon time to 90 minutes reduces absolute mortality by 2% or a total percent reduction in mortality of about 50%. That's a very powerful effect for a systems approach to this problem. Well, if this is working so well in hospitals that are well integrated, what do we do in hospitals that don't have a 24-7 cath lab? Do they need to be transferred to another hospital with facilities that are open? There's a lot of enthusiasm for that approach. I think in some places it's a very practical and reasonable way to go, and in others it is probably not. And it has to do with how close a so-called angioplasty-capable hospital is to a hospital that doesn't have capability for angioplasty. So there are two ways you can do that, and they've both been demonstrated to be effective. The first is in a city or an environment where there are a lot of hospitals to have the ambulances bypass hospitals that do not have angioplasty facilities and bring them directly to hospitals that do. Uh, that's a system that's being tried in Boston uh, quite effectively. So that means the EMS folks have to make the diagnosis in the ambulance. Yes, and in fact, that's another component that's really not door to balloon but greatly affects the overall ischemic time is doing the EKG in the ambulance. That's been shown to reduce the total ischemic time by 20 to 40 minutes. So that's a very powerful tool because then the EMS can basically notify the emergency room. The emergency room can read the EKG the emergency room physician can activate the team before the patient even arrives at the hospital. And that cuts a very substantial amount of time out of this this whole process. The second process that's uh, been done in more rural areas, such as up in Milwaukee, is having air ambulances and ground transportation from community hospitals that don't have angioplasty to rapidly bring patients to the primary hospital that can do this. They've set up very strict protocols 
the patients really are assessed very rapidly in the community hospitals and spend very few, maybe 15 or 20 minutes getting evaluated in the community hospital before they are shipped effectively to the primary hospital. And they've been able to achieve door-to-boon times that meet guidelines as a result of that. What about the possibility of giving thrombolytic therapy in the ambulance? Well, it would be a very attractive idea, wouldn't it, that you give uh, thrombolytic therapy in the ambulance, pre-hospital, or even in the community hospital before they're transported to the hospital that would do the primary angioplasty, the so-called facilitated angioplasty. The studies that have been done looking at facilitated angioplasty have all been negative. In fact, one of the studies showed an increase in mortality when you combine a lytic agent with primary angioplasty. The reasons for that are not entirely clear, but it does look like they have more failure rates, perhaps because the lytic therapy activates platelets, and it looks like they have bigger infarcts. So that strategy, even though it sounds terrific, is probably not the right one at the moment. I want to thank Dr. David Faxon, who has been our guest. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you very much today for listening.